We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Good morning, can you hear me? So today's reading is from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. That is on page 58 of your scripture journal. Just keep your hand up if you haven't got a Bible or if you want a scripture journal. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, on page 58. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. 
Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by the spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams up the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked this impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Welcome. My name's Simon. For those that I've not met in person yet, um, I'm married to Lisa, and we have two children, Esther and Joel. We've lived in Guildford and been part of Hope Church for just under two years now. And I had the privilege of speaking to the church early this year in the summer while we're still on YouTube. That was my first time. It was pretty exciting and I hope it was useful for those of you that were able to listen to it. Well, I've been invited back, so thank you. Um, This time I have to say I'm feeling the weight of it. This is a pretty important passage that I've been asked to speak on. So I pray that I'll be able to explain things clearly to you. Um, So on that note, I think I ought to pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible um, that you've given it to us so that we can understand your character to know you more. Thank you for your son Jesus who is so crucial to your rescue plan that we are reading about this morning. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that works inside our hearts to make your son known, to make us understand, to know you better. I pray, Lord, um, that your spirit would be at work in us this morning, showing us more about you, showing us how we can change, how we can know you better. I pray it won't be my words that we all hear this morning, but they would be Jesus' words that sink into our hearts, Lord. Amen. I want to start this morning with a question for you. 
That question is, what will be the mark of success in your life? I'll say that again. What will be the mark of success in your life? Ahead of you stretches a road reaching into the distance. Along that road are the ambitions you wish to achieve, the desires you wish to gratify. To bring your ambitions and desires to fulfillment, you must succeed with money. Use the financial principles made clear in the pages which follow. Let them guide you from the stringies. Let them guide you away from the stringencies of a lean purse to that fuller, happier life that a full purse makes possible. So starts the classic book, The Richest Man in Babylon. If, like me, before I started preparing for this morning, you have not heard of this book, that does not matter. I think the sentiment is startling. We can achieve our greatest ambitions and obtain our greatest desires. We simply need to learn the discipline and stewardship with money, the pathway to glory and happiness. It's a tempting offer. I mean, if, if we're honest, it's a voice we hear all around us. But is it true? Is success with money the pathway, the road to glory and happiness? Well, this morning, we rejoin Mark's biography of Jesus at the peak of his ministry at about 30 years of age. Mark began his biography with the words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The Messiah is the Jewish name for God's chosen or anointed king. And over the past three months, we've been reading together through Mark's biography and seeing Jesus perform miracle after miracle to prove that he is the Messiah king, the one promised by God to bring about his great rescue and establish the kingdom of God. On page 58, on chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus took his disciples aside and asked them the question, Who do you say I am? At this pinnacle moment in the biography, Peter declares... You are the Messiah. The significance of this question and answer should not go unnoticed. Mark has spent half of his book telling us about the historical events so that we too can believe and declare that Jesus is the Messiah King. But what then? Why is there a second half of the biography? What more do we need to learn and see? Mark has placed certain structures to his book. These structures help us to understand certain key details. As I've already mentioned, these verses come almost exactly at the halfway, halfway point through the book. And the first half of the book has the repeated theme of showing us who Jesus is. The second half of the book is a description of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. 
But in the middle, between these two halves, we find a bridge. That bridge begins with Jesus healing a blind man in Bethsaida and ends with Jesus healing a blind man in Jericho. Yes, Jesus did many healings, many miracles. So many, in fact, they're not all recorded in this biography. But Mark is not random in his account. No, under the power of the Holy Spirit, Mark has written this, structured this account in a certain way to teach us something. For those of you following in your journals, the first healing was back in chapter 8, verse 22. In this healing, Jesus heals a blind man in two steps. After the first pass, Jesus asks the man, Do you see anything? To which the blind man replies, I see people. They're like trees walking around. I love the magnificence of these words. A man who was completely blind can now see. But it's a partial sight. It's fuzzy and confused. Jesus has already performed greater miracles than this. So we know it's not because of a lack of power that this man has only received partial sight. No, something else is going on here. Something more that Jesus is trying to teach us. Jesus once more puts his hands on the man's eyes and this time we read, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. In the second pass, Jesus heals the man fully. The blind man can now see with perfect sight. Peppa Pig moment, apologise. The blind man can now see with perfect sight. The meaning of this two-step healing becomes clearer as we move on. As we do move on, we, we read of Jesus moving to the next village. Walking with his disciples, he asks them this pinnacle question, Who do you say I am? Peter responds and declares loudly, You are the Messiah! Peter sees. Peter has got it. Peter has seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle and understands that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. But what then? Has Peter's spiritual sight been fully restored? Or is it a partial sight? Fuzzy and confused. I've broken our passage down this morning into three sections and given them the headings that you can see on the screen. Let us walk through them together. One, God's rescue plan unveiled. Since the dawn of creation, since God's promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago in the desert of Canaan, since Moses and the great escape from Egypt, 
since the great King David ruled the nation of Israel. God's people have been waiting. God's people have been waiting for the unveiling of God's rescue plan. Peter has declared that Jesus is the Messiah King. But God's rescue plan is not what he expected. God's rescue plan is not what the Jewish leaders expected. God's rescue plan is not what our culture today expects. God's rescue plan is not what our friends and families expect. No, we live in a self-reliant, self-motivated, self-fulfilled culture. Our success is measured by what we have achieved, what we have accomplished. Wealth and belongings are the mark of the self-made man or the self-made woman. The reliance on others is a weakness. The world's religions are also about what we must do. Do I have enough good karma to offset my bad? Have I said enough Hail Marys that my sins will be forgiven? Can I do enough good deeds to offset my mistakes? Jesus speaks plainly in verse 31. The Son of Man, that is himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. No other religious leader has said these words. Jesus, having proved that he is able to do what God alone has the power to do, is now telling us that his reason to come to earth is so that he will suffer, be rejected and killed and rise again. Many a doubter have started the sentence, if I were God, I would come down to earth and make myself clearer by... This is a bold sentence, and it is sadly deeply uninformed. Jesus is speaking clear, unequivocal words. His mission to earth is to suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again. Peter cannot accept these words, and he butts in. Jesus turns to Peter and rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Moments ago, Peter declared that Jesus is the Messiah King. Now Peter is rebuking God's chosen King. Peter, the disciple, is rebuking the Son of God. Peter, the former fisherman, thinks he knows better no, Jesus, this isn't how it's going to work. Peter is rejecting Jesus' teaching. How is it possible that the Son of God should come to earth and be rejected and killed by his people? This is ridiculous. Yet, these are Jesus' words. Jesus spoke plainly about this. 
Jesus then calls the crowd around him and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus' words are plain. Jesus' words cut deep into our hearts. Our eternal future depends on our response to these words. Jesus has declared that he, the Son of God, came to earth to be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again. This is our only way. Faced with this blunt message, we have a choice. We can reject his teaching. We can dismiss it as words of a madman, irrelevant, out of date. We know better. But in verse 38, Jesus declares, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes with his Father's glory and the holy angels. We choose the path of rejecting Jesus at our peril. What then is our other option? Verse 34 again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. On first reading, the second option doesn't sound much better. If we choose to put our trust in Jesus, we trust in his death as the only way and his new life, and we hope in the new life of his resurrection. Yet this path is marked with self-denial. To follow Jesus means to follow his path. To follow Jesus means to deny ourselves. To follow Jesus means to say no to the voice inside us that tempts us to take the easy path, to put ourselves first. These demands are big. Jesus doesn't just want religion on a Sunday. Jesus wants our hearts and our souls to be devoted to his kingdom coming, to love mercy and justice. Jesus wants our whole lives. Yet, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What can we give in exchange for our soul? Jesus' death and resurrection gives us the one thing we cannot earn, the one thing we cannot achieve by our own works, our life and our soul. Jesus gives us freely what we cannot earn, yet the cost to us is everything. I say that again. Jesus gives us freely what we cannot earn, yet the cost to us 
is everything. There is a beauty in this paradox, but let us not gaze at it too long. There is also a simplicity, a plainness to Jesus' words. Choose Jesus. Choose God's rescue plan. the glory of Jesus unveiled the story continues six days later and Jesus takes three of his disciples to the top of a high mountain the events there are quite simply overwhelming Moses and Elijah two of the greatest heroes from Israel's history appear before them and Jesus is transfigured and his glory is unveiled Peter is scared and butts in with a dumb suggestion about shelters. Now, in fairness to Peter, there is some basis for this suggestion, but it's not important. We're told that Peter is frightened and didn't know what to say. I have to admit, before preparing for this morning, I thought transfiguration was one of those big Bible words with a big Bible meaning. But no, I was wrong. There is no other reference to transfiguration in the Bible apart from these events here on this mountain. Transfiguration simply means to change the appearance or form. Jesus was transfigured from the form of a man to something else. God is not able to unveil himself to his people in in the Old Testament. Moses pleads with God to see his glory, but he cannot see God's face, for sinful man cannot see him and live. Other prophets have had visions of God's glory. Isaiah tells us, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and I, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. To see the glory of the Lord is a big deal, and it is frightening. I'm not sure I know what a seraphim is, but it is powerful and it is worshipping the Lord of hosts on his mighty throne. The problem for Isaiah, like all of us, is that God is utterly holy. Sin cannot exist near him. We cannot approach him, for we will die Our sin will simply be burned up by his holiness. 
Yet, Peter, James, and John are given a vision of Jesus' glory on this mountainside. They struggle to comprehend what their eyes are seeing. But the purpose is made clear in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is the purpose of the transfiguration. The purpose of Peter, James and John being allowed to see some of Jesus' glory is that they might be told to listen to Jesus' words. What are those words? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. These words do not change. Jesus spoke plainly and clearly. The question is, do we choose to listen to them? If that's not enough, Jesus gently steers the conversation as they come down the mountainside. The disciples are puzzled and confused and they ask, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Well, this question is a reference to the prophet Malachi, who declared that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Jesus replies and makes it clear, Elijah, represented by John the Baptist, has already come, and he too was rejected and killed. The glory of Jesus has been unveiled to us. We see the glory of Jesus in these words. We see the glory of Jesus as he was rejected by his people. We see the glory of Jesus as he died upon a cross. We see the glory of Jesus as he was raised to life again. Let us listen to Jesus' words. Let us gaze at his glory Three, partial sight. The story continues as Jesus and his disciples descend the mountain. In verse 14, we read, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. We're told that the crowd are arguing about a healing that has apparently failed. A boy has been brought to the, brought to the disciples for healing. The boy is possessed by a demon that has robbed him of speech and throws him to the ground. The problem is, the disciples don't seem able to heal or cast out the spirit. Jesus arrives, confronts the issue, and casts the spirit out. Job done. But why is this somewhat unusual tale here? What is Jesus teaching us? 
I don't have much time to spend in this section, so I hope to get to a couple of the answers of some of your questions straight away. To begin with, is this epilepsy that the boy is suffering from? I'm no medical expert, but I understand the term epilepsy re refers to a condition of repeated seizures. So, in that sense, yes, part of the boy's condition could be what we call today epilepsy. However, there's something more going on here than a straightforward medical condition. We're told multiple times that a spirit, an impure spirit, is the cause of the boy's fits. There's a spiritual element to this story. We're told in verse 17 that the spirit has robbed the boy of his speech. And in verse 22, that often throws the boy into the fire or water to kill him. Our culture today does not speak much about spirits. But that does not mean they don't exist. We should not dwell on such spirits and search for them. But we should also not be ignorant of their existence. Most of all, we do not need to fear them. In verse 26, the spirit is cast out at Jesus' words. Second question, why can the disciples not heal the boy? The answer to this question is important, but it is not immediately obvious. This is a tough passage to understand. The story is in stark contrast to events that happened only a couple of chapters ago, when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach repentance with the authority to drive out demons and to heal. So what is happening here? Why has this healing failed? A good question to ask ourselves at moments like this is what would we not know if this story was not recorded for us? There must be a purpose for which God, by his Holy Spirit, inspired the writer to write this particular event. So what is it? What would we not know if this failed healing had not been recorded for us? As we read the story, we hear Jesus rebuking the crowd and the disciples for arguing and a lack of faith. On the flip side, Jesus commends faith and prayer and demonstrates that once again, he is the one with the power over evil and the power to heal. Faith. It's just that, trusting in Jesus as the powerful one. One mistake we can make about this passage is to read it as a guide about healing. No, I believe this passage is ultimately about faith and the outward response that faith in Jesus brings. These events show us something that is currently wrong with the disciples' faith. Something wrong with their spiritual sight. The disciples don't yet have a full understanding of Jesus and his mission yet. Like the blind man in Bethsaida, the disciples have started to see, but it's not a clear vision yet. It's fuzzy and confused. The disciples have seen Jesus perform miracles and healings that God alone can do. 
They have understood what this means. These miracles prove that Jesus is the Messiah King, the Son of God. This is good. But it leads to a bold outward response that is sadly misguided. Peter feels emboldened and he rebukes Jesus about his mission. The other disciples get ready to get on with some healings. But later in the same chapter, we will read about the disciples rebuking others for trying to drive out demons in Jesus' name. The heart of the disciples is made clear. The disciples want to be the special ones. They want the glory and the success Like Peter, the other disciples have not yet understood God's rescue plan. They have the wrong expectations for God's kingdom. They are looking for glory and success now. They are not listening to Jesus' words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Within a year of saying these words, Jesus was brutally rejected and nailed to a cross, just as he said it would happen. In his dying moments, a mocking voice is heard calling out to Jesus, Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Jesus, the Messiah King, could at any moment have come down from the cross and revealed his power and his glory by calling down bolts of lightning upon his enemies. But no. We see a greater glory in his sacrifice in his obedience to God's rescue plan. And it is that same path of sacrifice and obedience that he calls his disciples and us to follow. What then does this mean to us today? We have seen and heard Jesus' words. They're, they're plain, they're simple, easy to understand. God's rescue plan was for his son to come to earth, be rejected, killed, and on the third day rise again. Those events have happened in history. We can investigate the eyewitness accounts. We are given a choice. We can dismiss Jesus and his words. As a madman, irrelevant, out of date, we, we know better. But those that choose that path will be rejected when the Son of Man comes again with his Father's glory. The alternative is to believe Jesus and follow him. Taking a path that's not filled with glory in this present age. No, instead, we are called to humble obedience and patient perseverance. But 
We have seen the kingdom of a God arrive with power. Jesus, the firstborn in new creation, has been raised to life from death. We know that death in this world, for those that trust in Jesus, no longer leads to eternal death, but to eternal life with him. We experience that new life now, but following Jesus will be tough. We will grapple with persecution and illness in this fallen world. We will battle sin and selfishness in our own hearts. But we will also taste victories as we see new life, healing and growth of the kingdom of God. We long for the day when Jesus returns with the holy angels and we will fully experience the kingdom of God and we will see Jesus face to face. This is our future glory. This is success in our lives. At this point, I'd like to invite the band back to the stage. And I'm just going to take a moment more to throw some electronics in some water. That's a good idea. <laughs> I'm just going to take a moment more just to um, help us contemplate further uh, what these truths mean to us today. Uh, for the sake of this exercise, I'd like to introduce a friend. Um, for the sake of the exercise, let's say my friend's name is Simon. Simon will wake tomorrow morning. Like most Monday mornings, the alarm will feel like it's set 15 minutes too early. But I'll roll out of bed and I'll stop. Wait a second. My friend, Simon, will start the process getting ready. What will Simon's priorities be? Okay, a shower, some breakfast and caffeine. They're allowed. But... How do I set myself up to ensure that I can cope with and even overcome the challenges that the day will throw at me? If I'm honest, in these moments, I find it all too easy to slip into thoughts ahead of me about the projects that I need to complete, the clients I need to meet with today. Where am I going to find that extra bit of something to succeed, to, to be able to end the day knowing that I have achieved? Yet... If I'm honest, I also quickly remind that the kids are about to wake up. Oh, have I got everything ready to get them through the un unexpected dramas that inevitably unfold and safely guide them to the school gate on time? Perhaps it is a moment of quiet to think about where I'm going that I need. Perhaps the hope of the next step on the career ladder, the next, our next property move, our next summer holiday... Well, taking the moment to lift my eyes from the immediate challenges is certainly beneficial, but it is sadly too short-lived, for the glory of these good things will all fade. No, I pray that I will turn to Jesus and his words. God's way is sadly not my way by nature. I need to see his glory daily, the glory of his word, the glory of his death, the glory of his resurrection to enable me to live out a life of patient expectation 
expectation for that even greater glory when Jesus returns and I will see him face to face. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot even contemplate your glory. You, the creator, the sustainer of the entire universe. You, the great holy king. You, the one that chose to become a humble man, to come to this earth, to be rejected, to be killed, to be raised again. So that you would invite us to come and join you, to sit at your high royal table. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us. But you invite us to a path of self-denial. Help us to fix our eyes upon you as the glorious, the holy one, the one that went before us. And help us to be transfixed by your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.